our business in life is obviously the book of 1 Peter. If you haven't found your way there, we're going to be in chapter 3 this morning. A man was walking by a youth league baseball game and decided to stop in and watch the game for a little bit. He was a baseball fan, and he was talking to one of the youngsters on the team in the, in the dugout, and he said, what's the score? And the youngster replied back and says, we're losing 17 to nothing. And the man says, well, wow, you don't look very bothered or discouraged by that. And the young man replied by saying, why should I be discouraged? We haven't come to bat yet. <laughs> How about that? See, as a believer, when you know the truth, you know who's coming and you know what's coming. You always know the score, at least you should. So despite how bleak things might appear to be, you're not discouraged because of who you know and because of what you know. As 1 Peter 3 wraps up, a strong focus is placed on Christ. We're going to see that here very clearly. And in that focus, we see something that I am extremely burdened for us to see this morning, myself included, we see a clear pattern for victory. This is what we see as we begin to unpack this. Listen, whatever you might be wrestling or struggling with today, and in a group of this size, some are wrestling, some are struggling, some are really living the defeated Christian life. You're struggling. You're going to see very clearly, or begin to see, we won't finish this all today, this will be part one, but I promise you in terms of what we're going to see today, God is going to expose to you a very clear pattern for victory for you to follow, and then from there, you get to choose. You get to choose whether or not you follow that pattern. If you follow that pattern, oh my goodness, to the glory of God, my gosh, will you experience joy and peace regardless of what's happening in and around your life. But if you don't, then you'll continue to come up with excuses and reasons for why you just can't turn the corner, why you just can't get over, why you just can't move on, why you're just stuck, and so on and so on. And that's your choice, not God's. Verse 17, for it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil doing. Now, that ought to sound familiar to you by now. Look at verse 14. But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. And there are other references to this in the book of 1 Peter. What is of interest to God, though, in terms of why you see the repetitiveness of this, is because from God's perspective, when it comes to suffering, God is always as interested in why we're suffering. Is it because of obedience or disobedience? That is of great interest to God. Listen, in a culture, and I do mean a culture, that reminds people daily, subtly and not so subtly, 
We live in a culture that reminds people daily that, listen, they are a victim. Everybody's a victim. Everybody's been victimized. If you're hurting, if life's not working out, it's not because of you. It's because of what they did to me. It's because of that over there. It's because of something beyond the scope of my control. So this is why I'm depressed. This is why I'm angry. This is why I'm moody. This is why I'm bitter. This is why I'm miserable. I'm a victim. I can't help it. This is our culture. And so now, listen very carefully. Let me tell you how good the devil is. Because when you take that bait, guess what you do? You so easily mistake suffering for, you, you mistake, I'm sorry, you mistake reaping for suffering. <laughs> no, 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 you're not suffering, you're reaping. <laughs> But we, we live in a world that tells you if you're suffering and something is working against you, it's, of course it can never be you. I remember when my children were younger and we were teaching them about the importance of accountability, where they would, they would miss to, whether it was a chore or something like that. And I would ask them, why did you not do that? And they would give me an excuse and I would say, listen, that's an excuse. The reason that you did not do that was because it wasn't important enough for you to remember to do it. it, it it's not because you, you, you slept in too late or it, it's not because it rained or... No, 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 no. If, if I would have said to you, we're going to go to Worlds of Fun tomorrow, but in order for us to do that, it's very important for you to make sure you clean your room. So I want that room cleaned by 8, and then we'll be in the car by 8.30. Think they would remember that? Of course. <laughs> of course. Listen, it's incentive, right? This drives so much of what we do. What's in it for me? If something's in it for me, well, then I'll remember that. You following me? Right? We, we can get really good with excuses and reasons for why this isn't happening or whatever it might be. And the reality is, it's just, you know what, Lord? When the dust clears, I am just disobedient to your word. And I'm reaping that. Let's not kid ourselves. But if we are Christ-like, we're going to suffer for righteousness' sake. But what this also tells us is, if we're suffering... We need to suffer as he suffered, and suffer how he suffered, and suffered why he suffered, for righteousness' sake. Verse 18, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So here you have another scriptural reference that debunks the heresy of transubstantiation that teaches that the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table becomes the literal presence of Christ. Well, the Bible tells us very clearly that Christ uh, once suffered for sins, so there goes that. But what we see here in this verse, and this is, we, we begin to now uh, get with what I am 
I mean, bursting for us to see this morning. I, I, I am. Uh, it's interesting. This message looks different to me uh, today than it did a week ago. It's very interesting. I, in terms of, I, I think if I would have preached this message last week, I know for a fact it would have sounded a lot different. Uh, having more time with the Lord over it, 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 it there were some things that, that changed. And so I'm inside, I'm, I feel like I'm like a rocket ready to take off. And maybe it's just me. Maybe God just dealt with me so heavily here, but I'm bursting for you to see the gold and this pattern for victory, right? Listen, listen, listen from verse 18. Listen, if you want to win, and I mean win big, die to the flesh and walk in the spirit. If you want to win, die to the flesh and walk in the Spirit. Verse 18 says, Christ was put to death in the flesh, but quickened, that's made alive, by the Spirit. If you are going to suffer in a Christ-like way, it will be because you die to your flesh and you walk in the Spirit. I beg you, when it comes to suffering, listen, the flesh is enemy number one. Not the devil, not the world. When it comes to suffering, enemy number one is you. The great evangelist Dwight L. Moody said it best. He said, I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than any other man I know. He was right. Your greatest problem in life, you look at it every day in the mirror. I've been married now for almost 20 years. Do you know what the hardest thing about marriage is? This guy right here. This is the hardest thing about marriage. It's me. It's not Lori. It's me. <laughs> You know what the hardest thing about ministry is? It's me. I have more trouble with this guy than any other human being on the planet. When we are suffering, listen, the flesh wants nothing whatsoever to do with suffering in a Christ-like way. The flesh says forget about that. The flesh wants to focus on how it's being violated, how it's being mistreated, how unfair life is. And if you're not walking in the spirit, you will take that bait, you'll become a victim, you'll make excuses, and on and on and on. But one of the traits, and this is a critical one, we, I feel like sometimes we, this is like the, the, the stepchild trait, if you would, in the fruit of the spirit and its temperance. We kind of gloss over that. Uh, the word of God doesn't. It is as important as the other eight. I mean, you look at this word, you break it down. The root of the word temperance is tempered. It means to bring to a moderate state. Uh, the suffix ants, it means action or process. So here we go. Temperance is the process of bringing the flesh to a moderate state. When you're suffering, your flesh is raging, Right? When you're being attacked, when you're being violated, what's happening? Your flesh is saying, hey, 
Render evil for evil. Render railing for railing, verse 9. This is what your flesh is doing. This is what it's demanding. If you're not walking in the Spirit, you'll not temper that. You'll not bring that to a moderate state. Uh, One of the hardest lessons I had to learn early in our marriage was whenever Lori and I would get into those tense disagreements that were heavy and very hurtful, you know what the problem was? The problem wasn't what I had done or what she had done. The problem was I was not walking in the Spirit. That was the problem. Because when you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The Word of God tells you very clearly, it tells you the works of the flesh are what? They're manifest. They're clear. (laughs) You can't miss them. They're illuminated. They're very visible. And so are the manifestations of a Spirit-filled walk. Those are as clear. So at the end of the day, if I'm walking in the Spirit, the fact that Lori forgot to tell me that she, uh, I don't know, took $100 out of our savings account and didn't tell me, well, that's not an opportunity for me to explode and go, how dare you? You'd run everything through and by me. It all depends on, am I walking in the Spirit or not? If you're not walking in the Spirit, something like that becomes an invitation to World War III. Are you tracking with me, as Sam would say? And this is what some do. Uh, They're carnal, and you see the manifestations of that in their life because they're not walking in the Spirit. So listen, regardless of Where you are, if you are uncomfortable right now, regardless of the situation, if you would simply choose to die to your flesh and walk in the power of God's Spirit, victory will show up in your life on the spot. On the spot. Verse 19. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something that I rarely do. I'm going to ask you to either underline, highlight all of the above, mark somehow in your Bible, 1 Peter 3.19. Because I'm telling you, this, what you see here, is one of the most explosive and transformative truths that you will ever lay your eyes on in God's Word. Just trust God as we begin to unpack this And let him show you what is here. But for now, whenever we come to a passage like this, here in 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20, 
it is imperative that we compare Scripture with Scripture. What we don't do here at Midtown is I'm not going to run off and tell you what I think and, and go to Google and go to the gurus of our day and say, well, this is what they're saying. No, we're going to simply compare Scripture with Scripture and let the Bible interpret itself. Like any other passage, this is not... So listen, this doesn't give any of us license to step away from the, the non-negotiable rules of Bible study and just come up with whatever we want to come up with. Does that make sense? So verse 19 says, by which also he went and preached. And so verse 18 tells us that after Christ died in the flesh and he was quickened or made alive by the Spirit, all right, so, 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 so we get that there. So the data that we are getting in verse 19 is showing us what Jesus Christ did in and by the Holy Spirit of God while his body lay in the tomb those three days. This is the data that we're getting in verse 19. And we are told that he preached unto the spirits in prison. So the questions that arise very quickly is, okay, who were those spirits? Who are those spirits? And what prison is in view here? Now, the overwhelming usage of the word spirits in the New Testament, lowercase s, the overwhelming usage of that refers to angelic beings. You cannot miss that just in a casual Bible study, both godly and ungodly. Consider Hebrews 1, 7. And, the, and of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Hebrews 1, 13 and 14. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits? sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. Okay, and again, we, we could look at several more, but I just wanted you to see that. The next question becomes, though, where is the location of this prison? When the Bible speaks about hell, it is clear, very clear, that hell has bars, it has gates, it has chains, and it has a key. Those are all the things that we find in a prison, correct? You find bars, you find chains, uh, you find keys, right? You, you find gates. You, th these are all the things that you find. So by the Spirit, Jesus preached to angels in hell. This is what we see when we compare Scripture with Scripture. Now, it's also clear from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 2, that Paul makes it clear that there are three heavens. There's a first heaven, there's a second heaven, and there's a third heaven. You can cross-reference that. What is also clear is that there are for sure three clear compartments of hell. You can't miss that when you study Scripture. In the Old Testament, hell or grave were translated from the Hebrew word seal, okay? 
In the New Testament, hell was translated primarily from two Greek words, Gehenna or Hades. So, Sheol, Gehenna, or Hades represents where the lost go when they die. They go to Sheol, they go to Gehenna, they go to Hades. That's hell. The next compartment is referred to in Scripture as paradise or Abraham's bosom. We know that when Christ was on the cross, he said to one of the thieves, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Well, we know on that day that Jesus did not go to the third heaven after he died because he was in the tomb for three days. So paradise was not a reference to the third heaven. So he was not referring to that. In the narrative regarding the rich man and a beggar named Lazarus in Luke 16, we see that Lazarus, the beggar, when he died, he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Luke 16, 22. But when the rich man died, he was buried and the angels lifted up, I'm sorry, and the angels, I'm sorry, he was, the, the, when the rich man died, he was buried and then in hell, sorry, he lifted up his eyes being in torment. So he went to Hades. Lazarus, the beggar, went to Abraham's bosom. The rich man, he went to Hades. He went to hell. Abraham's bosom, or paradise, is where believers went to while they awaited the finished work of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this brings great clarity to what we see, and we're going to see this again in the next chapter, in chapter 4, where we're going to come back to what we're going to see here now. But this does bring great clarity to what we read in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. You have it in your notes. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. That phrase, he led captivity captive, it simply means to capture. So when Jesus ascended to the Father, he took into his possession those who were in Abraham's bosom. I mean, this is what you're, again, all we're doing is comparing Scripture with Scripture. But the Scriptures clearly reveal a third compartment, which gets us to where we're looking at right here in 1 Peter. 2 Peter 2, verse 4 says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Now, this word hell, in 2 Peter 2, verse 4, it is translated from the Greek word tataru. Okay, I know my Greek is not that great, but I'm just telling you that's the best I can do. Tartaru is the pronunciation, I believe. This is the deepest abyss of Hades where we find the bottomless pit, Revelation 20 and verse 1. 
Those were the spirits to who Christ preached in this place. Again, this isn't what Kenny thinks. I'm just showing you what the Bible teaches here. And in doing so, what we do is we come to realize that there had to have been two groups of fallen angels. There had to have been. We know that a third of the angels fell with the devil. We get that data in Revelation 12, verses 1 through 9. But Jesus preached to them on the cross. Look at Colossians 2.15. We saw this when we went through the book of Colossians. Colossians 2.15 tells us, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. They were defeated. (laughs) There was a massive announcement made that day to the devil and his fallen angels. They were defeated. Christ had triumphed over them. The angels that he preached to during those three days were in the deepest abyss of Hades and chains, not on the earth. So there had to be two different groups. Can't miss that. So then who are these angels then that Christ preached to in verse 19? Well, verse 20 begins to give you the clear answer. Which sometime were disobedient when the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. The egregious events of Genesis chapter 6 were the catalyst for the flood of Noah. They were. The wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And what infused all of that was something of a very diabolical nature, if you would. Look at Genesis 6, 1 and 2 in your notes. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now, when you compare, once again, Scripture with Scripture, I've given you the references with the sons of God that are mentioned in Genesis 6, with the sons of God mentioned in the book of Job, it is abundantly clear that these were angelic beings. You cannot miss that. That is very clear. So the spirits, which were sometime disobedient, were the angels who chose not to keep their first estate in heaven. And we get this in Jude 1, verse 6, and the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved an everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Now, here's where we begin to land the plane on all this. And we have to do that. The question that we have to answer is this. Now that we know who Jesus preached to and and where he preached that at, the the question we got to answer, and I'm telling you, this is, when you talk about 
your victory and mine. Oh, the question we got to answer is, what did he preach? And I'm telling you, this is a bomb. A bomb. <laughs> I mean, I'm talking, you, you think the A-bomb, listen, the A-bomb was a firecracker compared to what we're about to look at. A bomb. This will turn your world upside down if you get it. Second Peter 2 and verse 4 and Jude 1, 6 tell us that these angels are reserved unto judgment. So that's their forecast. The angels in the Tartaru section of hell, listen, they had to hear the message of Colossians 2.15. They had to get clued in on that. Hey, guys, new data in. <laughs> and I'm here to deliver it to you. The message of Colossians 2.15, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Boys, I'm here to tell you, you have been defeated. You lost. I have overcome. I have come here to collect what's mine. The keys to hell and death are now in my possession. Your boys that are hanging out on the earth, they've been defeated. They're done. I've triumphed over all of you. It's over. And I'm here to tell you, it's only going to get worse from here because the hell that you're in, this Tataru that you're in, this will be cast into the lake of fire. I didn't just overcome you. I demolished you. I have decimated you. It was a decisive defeat. Revelation 1.18, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. It's over. This is why Peter was led of the Spirit of God to include this. You've got a diabolical governmental regime that is running roughshod over you, butchering you and persecuting you unmercifully, but understand, you've won. You've won. You've triumphed because you're in Christ. 
In this pattern for victory, we see that we must, listen, know the score and enjoy the victory. We must know the score and enjoy the victory. On February the 5th of 2020, in Kansas City, with temperatures in the teens with the wind chill, just shy of one million people gathered at Union Station. Why? Because they knew the score from Super Bowl 54, where our beloved Kansas City Chiefs defeated the San Francisco 49ers. And why were they there? They were there because they knew the score and they were there to enjoy the victory. For the believer, sometimes the climate in life can be frigid like that, cold. But if you know the score, you can enjoy the victory. Like that kid at the baseball game. We haven't come to bat yet. Hey, I know how this ends. I know who's coming, and I know what's coming. Can I tell you, one of the hardest, and I do mean one of the hardest, and it never stops, one of the hardest things to watch in ministry is watch believers live the defeated Christian life. Gut-wrenching. They live as if Jesus Christ died and was buried, and that's it. They're downright miserable. They're bitter. They're sour. They're cantankerous. They're unpleasant. They're unhappy. You ever notice, like, like you can, how you're around certain people and you can feel it? You can feel it. You, 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 you can feel the tension. You, you, you can feel the the discontentment, you, you, you can feel the negativity, you, you can just feel it. And what is, and, and it's like, it's like you, and listen, you know, um, like as a pastor, you don't, I mean, you, you, you don't get to like, you got to deal with those people. And I, and I just want to say, hey, have you, do you know the score? Do you know the score? You've won. You have won. Listen, in Christ, there are no losers. There are no losers in Christ. None. So why are people... This is so difficult to watch. So, in case you missed the headlines as a believer in Jesus Christ. Can I give you the score? Can I tell you the score? 
Not, not me. I, I, I'm just going to let the Word of God tell you and me as believers. I'm going to tell you the score. And, and as we go through this, I don't know if I underline these words or not. If I didn't, I'm going to ask you to because you're, you're going to see the score. I'm going to tell you the score in terms of this, this, this battle between you and your three greatest foes. Okay? John 16, 13. Jesus says, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace, and in the world, underline that, ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome, underline overcome, the world. Underline world. How about Romans 8, 11, and 12? But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh. Did you underline flesh? To live after the flesh. Would you underline flesh again? Do you understand what Paul is saying here? One of the most liberating days of my life when I paid off my student loans years ago. Done. You know what that meant? You have no power over me. I don't owe you anything. You can send me a letter if you want. <laughs> you, listen, do you understand when Paul says that we are not debtors to the flesh? Listen very carefully. What he is saying is when your flesh says, you owe me some pornography, you owe me some alcohol, you owe me some meth, you owe me some anger. You owe me some bitterness. You owe me some insecurity. You owe me some fear. You owe me some depression. You've got to give it to me. You owe that to me. Paul says, that is a lie. It's a lie. You owe me some anxiety. No, I don't. I am not a debtor to the flesh. Amen. I don't owe my flesh anything. You owe me some fornication. You owe me some adultery. I don't owe you a red cent. Why do we say that? Pennies are brown. <laughs> you see what I did? I cut the intensity. How about that, huh? Finally, 1 John 4, 4. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you, would you underline this phrase, than he that is in the world. Brothers and sisters, who've been made to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, brothers and sisters who are in Christ, let me tell you the score. Let me tell you the score. You have defeated the world, 
the flesh and the devil. You have defeated them in Christ. The minute you said yes to the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you were victorious over all three of those for eternity. So what? listen, whatever is defeating us has been defeated in Christ. That's the crazy part, isn't it? How is it that we're losing in something where we've already won? This thing that's running rush out over my life is crazy. I've already beat it. But why is it beating me? Because the pattern for victory that is beautifully given to us here, we just say, no, thank you. I'm not going to die to my flesh. I'm going to live to it. I'm not going to walk in the spirit. I'm going to fulfill the lust of my flesh. <sighs> hey, God gave you a free will before you met Christ, and you got to keep it after you met him. But let me tell you, that's a lousy way to use it. Father, in Jesus' name, help us to reconcile the truths of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.